this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think that if you're thinking about it, do it. I can't stress enough that, yes, it's it's overwhelming, it's daunting, it's hard, but you have done harder things in your life. And to be your own boss, there's nothing like it. I have physicians come up to me all the time and they're like, there's no way I would do that. You're crazy. That's That's impossible. But it's really not. You can figure it out. And if you have the cushion to be able to do it, I really think that if you do a good job, you're yourself, you practice good medicine, the patients will come. And so I, I think that it's really something that I wish more people did because I think that the benefits of it are so much more. I am so much happier. And I just feel like if you're thinking about doing it, please take it to the next step and really try because I think you'll be happier. everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. We are a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, everyone. Really exciting news. Our listeners asked, and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Back Table and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now on with the episode. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT uh, in Dallas, Texas. How are you doing today, Ash? Hey, Gopi. I'm so good. How are you? I'm look, <laughs> looking forward to this today. It's looking we, forward to we're, it. As well. We're overdue for a for a new show. Yeah. So we have Dr. Rena Mitha. She's an allergy and asthma specialist in New Orleans, Louisiana. Rena obtained her medical degree from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where she graduated cum laude. She completed her, res- her pediatric residency at Texas Children's Hospital, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and subspecialty training in allergy and immunology at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Rena lives in New Orleans, where she has her own practice, Uptown Allergy and Asthma. And Rena is here today to talk to us about how to build a practice. Welcome to the show, Rena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Rena, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Okay, so I am probably one of the few people who have branched out on my own and started my own practice. It didn't happen right away. Um, I have been in practice for, for several years. And so prior to starting my own practice, after I graduated from fellowship, I was in academic medicine um, at two different institutions. I was where I did my fellowship training at UTMB for a few years. And then I was also a faculty, academic faculty at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, obviously. After that, I was then was in private practice, a group practice in New Jersey for a few years. And then we suddenly moved to New Orleans um, per choice. Um, It's a great city for anyone who's not been there before. And after moving to New Orleans, I had already had the experience of being in academic medicine. I'd already had the experience of being in private practice. And it was the perfect point in my career where I could basically do anything that I wanted. It was more of like, okay, what do I imagine for myself? long-term, what do I imagine for myself as my career goal? And that was how I came about starting my own practice. 
That's awesome. For for those of us who have not done the pediatric and then allergy fellowship route, what what's your you know training background look like? Because you know in in ENT otolaryngology we get some allergy throughout our residency, but it's very different from you know you being like spending a significant amount of your time on you know focused on allergy and immunology. So that's a great question. So in allergy and immunology, you can either do a residency in pediatrics, you can do a medicine in internal medicine, or, or sorry, residency in internal medicine, or you can do a combination of med peds. So I did my residency in pediatrics at that time, not knowing that I was going to specialize in allergy and immunology. And then when you do your fellowship, um, probably similar to ENT, you are cross-trained in the other field that you didn't do. So in my fellowship is when I did a lot of adult allergy and immunology training. So coming out from fellowship, you're basically cross-trained to treat kids and adults. So I think it's one of those few specialties where you can pretty much see any age group. And is that like a year, an extra year or two, two, two years? Two uh, years. Most fellowship programs are two to three okay, years. Gotcha. And then um, your practice also fo focuses on allergy and asthma. So in terms of asthma, that's also a pretty big part of your practice, Rena. Yes. Yeah, so I do um, every, so allergic conditions, so allergic rhinitis, food allergy, a lot of eczema. Um, asthma is a big component. We do a lot of like mild to severe asthma, as well as immunology. So I see patients with immunodeficiency and treatment plans for recurrent infections and things like that. So, you know, it's hard to, I feel like so few people kind of go out on their own these days, and especially being in like a big city. You had different experiences, which is pretty amazing, and different academic institutions as well as in a private group. What was it where you were like, listen, I just want to do have my own practice, sort of what inspired you? So it's funny because this is definitely not something that I ever thought that I would do. I never imagined starting my own practice. And it's it's scary. It's a bit daunting when when you're in your training, you're not really taught a, taught to start your own practice. You're really not learning anything about the financial aspect of private practice. Or, or anything of that sort. And so it's, it seems like this unknown world. And when we moved to New Orleans, it was, like I mentioned, it was kind of a crossroads of my career where I, I was thinking, am I going to go back into academics? Am I going to join a group? And I started interviewing when I was here in New Orleans. It wasn't, I didn't come here thinking I would start my own practice. I started interviewing um, at different places. And I just, I had been out of fellowship long enough where I kind of knew what I wanted in the sense of what, what was a good balance for me. And I wasn't finding it. So I was, you know, I was interviewing everywhere and it just wasn't what I was looking for. Some places were having me drive all over to different locations and different clinics. And I just, I didn't want that. I knew that I wanted to practice close to where I lived and I didn't want to commute because I commuted from Houston to Galveston for many years. And I just knew that that wasn't for me, but I wasn't finding what I was looking for. And so my husband said to me, well, I think you should start my, your own practice. He's an interventional cardiologist. And he said, you should start your own practice. And I said, you are absolutely crazy. And I said, we have two young children. Like, I don't even know how I would even start. I think that's a terrible idea. And I don't have the time for it. And he's like, listen, you have always wanted to be a leader. You want to be, you know, the chief of a division or a chairman of a program, or you want to lead a practice. And, and that's not happening here in New Orleans. So either you <laughs> start your own to create your own happiness or you go work for an insurance company. <laughs> and I actually interviewed with different insurance companies like United Healthcare and all those places because, um, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I, I, I didn't want to go back to general pediatrics at that point. I had felt far removed enough where I thought about it, but I, you know, I just wasn't, I, it had been 10 years and I just wasn't wanting that. So that was how it came about. 
I started researching it. I, I reached out to a couple of people who had done it. I reached out to Gopi's husband, um, who had, he was actually the first person that I spoke with and said, you know, where do I start? Literally Googling, how do you start your own medical practice? There are not books about this topic. So, you know, as many books as there are in the world, there, I was not able to find any sort of a, a, a resource as this is where you start. So, so anyways, my, my path was basically talking to other physicians who had done something similar and then figuring out if it was something that I could imagine doing. So, so the first step was kind of just trying to get a roadmap, you know, like going to Google like we, like we all do for everything. And then at what point do you, like, did you do like a um, market research to kind of figure out if your area was saturated with pediatric allergists already, or did you, were you worried about, you know, kind of knowing your competition? I mean, you had probably interviewed with a lot of your competition, so you probably knew quite a bit already. Absolutely. Um, like New Orleans is a city, it's a, a small city. So it, it is a city where you, you know, pretty much every allergist that is here. And so, I mean, I kind of already, once I moved here for a few months and came to the terms that, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And the worst case that happens is it fails and I just close my doors and, you know, time is lost, but that's it. So then I started thinking about, okay, if I'm actually going to do this, what, where do I start? And I think first step is understanding location. Um, if you're thinking about starting your own practice, it's really hard to do anything without knowing where you want to practice. So it was understanding the, the demographics of other allergists in the area. I felt very strongly that I wanted to practice near where I live and where my kids go to school. I enjoy being a physician within the community. And so that was something that was important to me. And I also knew that there were not a lot of pediatric allergists in uptown New Orleans. So so in terms of understanding that piece, that was pretty easy because I, I limited myself to, to knowing I wanted to be close to home. And then once you decide that this is what you want to do, the first step is finding the space because it's hard to do anything else in terms of like getting on getting credentials with insurance companies and, you know, getting your supplies and all that, all those things together without knowing where it will be. So I reached out to a few realtors and I said, show me what's in Uptown. There was absolutely nothing available in Uptown for medical office space. And so then I did something that was not very common, I would, I guess. I started knocking door to door. So I went to Again, Uptown New Orleans isn't huge. I mean, there's only kind of two areas where there is medical practices for the most part, which are next to hospitals. So I just got a map of, of what medical practices were there, private practices, and I started knocking door to door and saying, hi, I'm Rena. I'm an allergist and I'm looking to start my own practice. Do you have space that I can rent? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I went to one building and there was really nothing available there. But somebody said to me, listen, why don't you try across the street? There's an internal medicine practice. And my understanding is that one of the doctors there is retiring. Maybe you'll get lucky. So that's exactly what I did. I walked across the street. I knocked on the door. Hi, I'm Rena. <laughs> I'm looking to rent medical office space. I'd like to start my own practice. I had my CV with me. I handed it to the receptionist. The, the receptionist, I guess, went and spoke with the physician there. And he pulled me in the back for an interview. And he said, tell me why you want to start your own practice. So I went through the whole thing of, you know, this is my background, this is what I do, this and that. And at the end of the meeting, he said, OK, you can have two exam rooms. And I, wow. I literally <laughs> fell out of my chair and said, oh, OK, so I guess that's what I'm doing. So he was an older gentleman, um, an internist. And, and as I mentioned, his partner was retiring. Literally, I think it was luck at that time, too. It's just he was retiring around the time where I was looking to start. 
he had two available exam rooms. He said, okay. And that's what I did. And so then I had a physical location and two exam rooms. And then that's pretty much how it how it went from there. Serena, were you also uh, renting, not renting, if you will, but um, using their staff uh, as well, like their MAs, their reception, or did you bring in your own crew? So that's a lot of things to consider when you're starting your own practice is, is what do I need? And I think the biggest thing that my husband and I decided is keep your overhead small. If you can keep your overhead small, then your expenses, again, go hand in hand, are not high and you can, you can make ends meet. And so when I first came in and I spoke with him and we, we talked a little bit, there was an idea that maybe I would, I would use his staff. And then it just got complicated, you know, because what happens if they're seeing a patient, obviously they're going to, his staff is, his patients are going to be the priority. And it was just too much overlap. It was too much, it was too complicated. And so after quickly realizing that it would be challenging to prioritize what I needed, I decided to hire my own staff. So I started with one medical assistant. I mean, there were multiple steps in between before I even got to the level of hiring staff, but I hired one medical assistant. We started with a cell phone that we would pass back and forth to each other because I wasn't, you know, quite busy at the time. And so there were times where I could be home and, and answering calls or or on my kids' field trip and answering calls. And it's it's funny now I look back and I have like two phone systems. I've got five staff. It's 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 totally different now. But I started very small. I hired a part-time MA for three days a week in the beginning, and then it just kind of evolved from there. And so I assume the, um, you talk about how you kind of, your, your plan was to keep, to have a, you know, low overhead. Um, so, um, so you, I assume, you know, sat down and made some sort of, you know, budget or projections of like kind of what you would, you know, how many patients you would need to see and like this and that. So can you talk more about kind of how that, that planning, creating that business plan went down? You know, I, and, two did did you plan to start with two exam rooms was that kind of like what you needed to be able to break even every month or so that's a that's a great question and so so originally when i i didn't even know where to start with projecting how much things would cost i mean it was literally like i have no idea and so as i mentioned before i reached out to a couple of physicians who were not in my specialty but there is enough overlap in medicine that you know you basically need a lot of the same things to start with and and one of them did have a spreadsheet that sort of listed the basic things that you need and then the cost that to expect from there. So that was like a good place to start. And then honestly, Facebook has been very helpful. So they have, you know, I'm, I'm sure every specialty has their own Facebook group of ENT allergy. And so I posted on our um, private practice allergist um, Facebook group and said, I'm starting my own practice. Does anybody have any um, advice? Is anybody willing to talk to me? And there was an allergist in, in Philadelphia who's to this day I still haven't met, but she she was said, call me. And it was really wonderful. Um, and now this, you know, looking back, I've done this for people when they when they are looking to start their own. And I say, call me. And it, it's very helpful because you just don't know where to begin. So she had had some sort of a spreadsheet that said, you know, all the steps of like, you know, she had written it out and said, you know, this is your checklist and these are all the things that you need to accomplish. And then this is basic general idea of cost. And then also a lot of times on your um organizational website. So like we have Quad AI, I'm sure ENT has their own. We have American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. There is a section for for physician resources. And somebody had told me, I mean, you know, I never go on that website in the sense of like looking for for other than, you know, articles and journals. And so they said, look under the one that says, you know, private practice resources. And on, on, under there, there was actually a document that said, these are the things to think about when you're six months out, four months out, three months out of starting your own practice. And there was a checklist, which, you know, again, I had no idea that that was there, but that was very helpful. 
And so then I basically made this Excel spreadsheet of what I projected the cost would be. And I, I went above what I thought because I figured if you if you over budget, then that's probably better. And generally put it all together and said, OK, well, this is what I need to do to take out a loan. And so I went a little bit above also what I thought I needed in terms of the loan just to make sure that there was padding there. And and then that was it. I I found a banker. You know, a lot of this is word of mouth. You find a CPA who finds you a banker. The banker basically says, OK, give me all of your information and you get approved for a loan. So so that was that was very helpful. Sounds like you guys can write a uh, manual like a book now. I should. My husband tells me this all the time. Is like you I'm really like, need to write this to help other people. And then, of course, now is like, where is the time to yeah, do that? Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, this you're too busy now. To people. Yeah. You've been too too successful. You don't have time. Um, what What were your big line items on your on your budget? I assume rent, like the cost of the space and your staff, are kind of the big ones. In in allergy, do you also have a lot of other equipment type things, or does does the allergy testing stuff? You know, is that expensive or not really? That's a big part of the cost. And so when when you're budgeting, you have to think of there's also you have to think of equipment. And so for me, my biggest expense is the extracts that I purchase. And so that was something that I'd factored in. You know, you once you kind of know you're starting your own practice, then you reach out to different companies who have that, you know. And so my general rule of thumb is I would get three quotes and pick one. Because there's so many options. When even when it came to EHR, I picked three that people recommended, and I just picked one. Because you could get really into a spiral of of lots of options and lots of choices, and then making it difficult to make a decision. And so, biggest costs for me were the extracts that I needed. Other costs included website. So you know, when you're starting out, especially for me in a location where I knew no one and I had no following, I really had to figure out a way to get my name out there. And so, what I realized very quickly was one important piece was was website and and getting high on Google so that people can find me and they can search for me. So that actually that cost of the website was a big chunk of my startup. And then equipment, like we mentioned, extracts for me is one of the biggest thing. Electronic health record is another big piece that you have to consider when you're starting your own practice. Then also getting on insurance plans, you need to get credentialed. And so either you could do it yourself, which is for me, I realized very quickly that that was going to be a hard thing for me to do. So I outsourced that and I found someone to help me who is still the person who does my billing today. So that was a big factor in in cost. And then rent, as you mentioned, and then staffing, which staffing came later. I mean, I wasn't until I had the physical space set up, I couldn't even think about who I needed to bring in to help me until I realized, you know, I had all the backbone set, set in place. And so when you think about, so it sounds like there's lots of different major costs and expense and planning and decisions. Um, and you talked about go- getting a bank loan. Were there times or, you know, do you have a business partner or is there, you know, how does that work? Or was it just like, no, I want to just do this completely on, on my own? I did it completely on my own. I mean, I my husband is very supportive. He is, as I mentioned, in medicine, he's an interventional cardiologist, but I mean, he has his own job. So he was helpful in terms of helping me organize my thoughts in the beginning. And and he has helped me a lot with the financial piece and the banking and the, those steps, the CPA and, and et cetera. But pretty much I just did it on my own. And now looking back, I'm, it's hard to imagine where I found the time. But in the beginning, you know, we all went to medical school. We're smart people. And we all did residency and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you can do that, Starting your own practice, while it seems super overwhelming, is not that hard. It's really just being organized and having your list and then checking it off, which I think we're all really good. We're all type A. 
And so <laughs> I think that if you are type A and you're motivated and you're you suddenly become passionate about something, it's very easy to make it happen. So I would say studying for step one or boards or anything like that is way harder than starting your own practice. Yeah. How did you decide what you wanted to outsource and what and what all do you outsource and what do you still do yourself? I wish I could outsource everything at this point. But in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, it was, OK, how much time is this going to take? And is this something that I'm skilled at doing? And if the answer was no, I outsourced it. So website, I'm not a tech savvy person. That was very easy to say. I'm going to hire someone to do this. Credentialing. It is. So, I still struggle with understanding insurance. Obviously, I understand it a lot better than I ever have. But I knew that getting on those plans and figuring out how to do all that was going to be overwhelming for me. So I outsourced that. A lot of people do their own billing. Um, I just don't have time for it. Um, even in the beginning, I got br busy pretty quickly that I, I just don't have time to look over every single code that I put in, make sure I'm getting paid what I need to get paid. So that was easy for me. I outsourced billing and it was worth every every single penny. When it comes to payroll, I still do payroll myself um, because it's hard to find a company who, unless you have a, an in-house office manager, it's hard for a company to know where your staff is and is it accurate and all, you know, only I know that information. And so that piece I still do. I, I'm at the point now where I'd like to ha hire an office manager to deal with staffing issues and payroll and things like that. Um, so that, you know, now I'm in my next phase of expansion of finding more space and, and hopefully bringing on another provider and an office manager and those things. But in the beginning, that was what I did myself. I, I managed all of, and I still do, all of my staff hours, all the staffing issues is something and hiring staff um, is something that I've always done myself. And so are you at the point where you want to start sort of owning your space? Is that how essential or, or important is that? Does it make a difference? Does it matter whether you rent or own your office space? For me, in the beginning, renting space was was important because I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know if I was going to be successful. And I really only needed two exam rooms in the beginning because it's just me. And, you know, I, it wasn't something that was essential to buy something and to have another loan on top of your already business startup loan was was overwhelming. So when I first started, I was never thinking about buying something just because I needed to needed time to see how it would go. Once I started my practice within four months, I broke even. And so it, it happened very quickly. And I think as an allergist, probably your equipment overhead is less than, for example, ENT. But that being said, with even with a practice like ENT, even if you're buying equipment for procedures and things like that, you you get reimbursed for it, you make up for it. And so I think that if you're motivated, it's easy to build quickly. The other thing you have to remember is I'm getting 100% of my collection. Nobody is, you know, while insurance companies are challenging and, you know, certain plans like Medicaid doesn't pay that well, it's all coming back to me and I get to decide what I want to do with that. When I was in a group practice, I was getting 35% of my collections. And so where did where did the rest go? I still, I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, obviously it was to pay overhead and things like that. But, you know, when you are on your own, in a way you make more because it all comes back to you and then you get to decide who you pay and what you're doing with it. So within four months, I was shocked. I broke even. And even in my first year, I, I made money. I mean, I didn't make as much as where I was in a successful practice completely full, but I, I, I was, uh, there was positive net. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and then COVID hit. And, you know, as everybody experienced, um, things shut down. And I, I was already practicing telemedicine before that. And so that was, for me, luckily, a fairly easy transition. But again, where I am successful and profitable is my testing. And my and and shots and things like that, which that basically went away for a couple of months. So there was definitely a dip for about two months. 
But then things may, things kind of opened back up again. And I started seeing patients back in the office and started doing testing. And then it just made up for it. It, it, it was, it was booming after that. Everybody's trying to get in because there was two months loss of medical care. And so, I mean, while there was a little bit of a dip with, co- with COVID, I got really busy quickly afterwards. And also with the, you know, with the different loan options and that we got during that time, it was fine. So I think that if you're, if you're motivated, you can quickly recover your loan cost and then be even more profitable at the, at the end of it. Well, you, you dealt with COVID as well as Hurricane Ida recently. As you know, those are some big, I think, challenges and time that chunks of time that take away, I guess, or have to pause. What are some of the pearls or the lessons from some of those just being out on your own? I mean, for those of us in academics, we still have our institutions, I guess, if you will, to fall back on. Um, tell us about that. That's a great question. So I'm still recovering from Hurricane Ida, not financially, because when Ida hit a few months ago, I'm, I'm busy now. I mean, I'm booked now through January, which is an awesome problem to have. But when you suddenly can't see scheduled patients for three weeks, where do you put them and how do you make up for it? And so that's more of what I'm dealing with now is trying to figure out without, you know, breaking my back, how do I get all those patients seen and how do I make up for, for that lost time? Now, when you're on your own, yeah, if you're not working, you're not making money. So, so that's part of something to consider. And if, that, if you're the breadwinner or that's hard, then, of course, it's, it's some, certainly something to think about. Life happens. And when unexpected things happen, things shut down. And uh, unfortunately, I've had to experience two dramatic examples of that. But then, you know, October came. And my billing person said, Hurricane Ida, what? You know, meaning I totally <laughs> made up for for the loss of financials in that month because I think I just, you know, worked really hard in October. And those three weeks, um, I've made I, financially, I, I have recovered from that. So I think if you're good and you're busy and you've got something to offer patients that maybe your competitors don't, you will get busy pretty quickly and you will be successful. Speaking to that, um, what, you know, did you sit down and think about anything in particular about how you were going to differentiate yourself, you know, from your, from the other allergists in the market? Like, was it, um, you know, is it, is it just one thing or is it just like, I'm just going to be myself and give great patient care and, uh, and then it, it will, it will come. I think it's be myself and give great patient care. Um, one thing that I've been successful in terms of getting my name out there is I have um, a gig on the news. And so when I first started my practice, the internist that was renting me space, he he has a spot on the news um, pretty regularly. And so when he would go out of town, I would cover for him. And so that's how I kind of got on the local news station. And then from there, they said, you know, we like you. Will you do something scheduled? So twice a month, I, I do a medical segment on the news. And that's been, you know, for me, that's free marketing. It gets my name out there and um, people see me on the news and comment or they'll schedule an appointment. So that's been one way that I've been able to get my name out there without having to put in a lot of money or any money for that matter. Um, so I think if somebody is interested in doing that, giving I, in the beginning, I started giving a lot of lectures. Uh, I, I, you know, when you are in private practice, it's helpful to have privileges at a hospital. Because if I need to send a patient over or if there's a consult, they'll call. Now, now they know to call me. I would, I would literally go to the ER and say, hey, I'm an allergist. If you have anything, I would, I would reach out to the medical staff and say, hey, I'm, you know, if anybody wants a, a lecture. I mean, people love you being involved. And so, I mean, m- many times academic doctors are tired and they don't want to give another grand round. So having somebody 
come in enthusiastic and excited and want to talk about something, please come in and we'll schedule you. So I gave grand rounds at all the hospitals. I have privileges at three hospitals. I gave grand rounds at all three hospitals that I have privileges at, and I got great feedback. So then my name gets into the community that even some of the academic doctors are referring patients to me now because to get in with allergy at their own hospital will take six months. And so if I can get them in in six weeks, they're, they're, they just want their patients taken care of. And so that's been a great way to, to really get my name out there. Is, is, and then I, I, in the beginning, when I was less busy, I was going to different practices. I was going to the private internist and the private pediatric clinic and, and you know, bringing them cookies or, or something, buying lunch and, and having my cards there and just chatting. And then they would ask me, you know, well, how do you manage asthma? And how do you manage food allergy? And how do you do this? And, you know, if they were happy with what I told them, they started sending patients to me. So in the beginning, a lot of my patients were coming from website and Google. Now, after being in practice now for two and a half years on my own, a lot of the referrals are coming from from doctors in the community. That's awesome. I, yeah, I love the fact that it's about giving great patient care and being yourself at the end of the day, because that's what I think is probably the most valuable part about your relationship with your patients and sort of the, quote, product or whatever it is that, that stand, keeps you standing apart. Do you feel like in a solo practice, there's an importance of brand or anything like that? Like, is that where it, it seems like with certain maybe groups or, you know, certain ways people might advertise there's something about brand. Do you find that to be important or is that part of at all part of your practice, Rena? Or what is that? I don't I don't even know. And I know, Ash, you have your MBA too and sort of what y'all's thoughts are and sort of if, if that's something that is even still part of it for uh, in your practice. Well, it's my brand, right? It's my baby. So <laughs> so I think so. I mean, when you hear Uptown Allergy and Asthma, I want people to say, wow, that's a really good doctor. So I was approached about six months ago from a allergy practice, not within the state of Louisiana, from Alabama, who wanted to start something in Louisiana, and they were talking about acquiring me. And, they, you know, they put together a whole proposal with decent buyout, and I would still have the ability to practice and, you know, be I guess, the face of the practice, but it wouldn't be my practice anymore. And I thought about it for, you know, a hot minute. And then I said, no, I mean, I've worked <laughs> so hard to develop this brand and this is my baby. And while, you know, I'm tired at times and it's hard, I am so professionally happy with the choice that I made because I get to do it my way. And there is nothing better than the autonomy of that. And so I think the brand is my brand. So yes, I think it's important. And I don't know that it's replaceable or, I mean, maybe as I get older, I don't know if it's, if I would, even now as I'm thinking about bringing somebody else on and hiring another provider, it's really important to me that the name of the practice, the brand of the practice, and the way I practice is continued. Yeah. And and um, how did you decide that you wanted to, you know, call it like, you know, Uptown allergy as opposed to, you know, having it just be your name on the front door? Or did you think about that? Oh, I, I definitely thought about it. And <laughs> sometimes my last name is is hard to say. And um, so I thought very quickly that maybe I wouldn't make it my last name because I think there's like five different versions of how to say my last name. And I just didn't want it to get confusing. And then I thought, where am I? What what stands out? And I wanted I, I was very particular about wanting to be uptown which is why I named it Uptown Allergy and Asthma. Um, but it's funny because now that after Hurricane Ida hit and, you know, there's all these kinds of thoughts about 
business is getting destroyed or also thinking about buying something, I'm very limited in Uptown. And so I couldn't go even one town over because I'm Uptown. And so, you know, looking back, maybe I would have not geographically limited by its name. I mean, I'm happy. I still love the name. But at the same time, I really can't go anywhere else in New Orleans. Or if I was to expand to, which I don't think I want to do, but let's say I wanted to open a different location. I don't know what I would call it. <laughs> so so I think that's, you know, in hindsight, maybe I would have chosen a different name, but I was very gung-ho about being uptown when I first started. And I still am, but for other people doing this, maybe maybe put your own name on, name on the door and then it can translate to anywhere you go. I think it's a great name. Sometimes when I talk to other private practice doctors, staffing is a big thing that comes up. It's just kind of like hiring staff, dealing with, day, you know, when staff calls in and kind of having to kind of deal with that, you know, the morning of and you got a, you know, full, pay, full, full day's worth of patients and suddenly you don't have staff there, turnovers, you know, all, all the different things when you're dealing with people who have complicated lives and different things that are happening. Um, so how has that been? And has there been anything, you know, in that area that you've learned or that you've been surprised about? I'm really glad you asked me that question. I know I paint the perfect rosy picture, and it's obviously not always that. And I think the hardest part of the job is staffing. And that has been the hardest thing for me emotionally and physically, because when you don't have an office manager and it's just you, you have to deal with everything that comes your way. And so, like I mentioned in the beginning, I had one person. And then about eight months in, I hired two people. And then about 11 months in, I hired three people. And then COVID hit. When COVID hit, I lost two out of three of my staff. They just disappeared and they said, I'm out and they didn't come back. And so just while the volume wasn't high during COVID, the navigating of how to switch to telemedicine and how do you then collect payment and how do you get your forms in? I mean, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And then it's still hard. <laughs> I have five people now, but there's a lot of turnover because if you hire someone young and smart and motivated, they're great. And then they go to med school or they go, they move on. And then if you hire someone who's been doing it for a while, they're not as motivated or they've, they've seen it in different ways and they don't want to change to doing it how you want to do it. And so I find that it's been the hardest part of the job is my cell phone rings at seven in the morning and I already know, okay, someone's got a flat tire or, you know, they're, they're somebody's sick or they're not coming in. And it's like, I've now I've just learned to roll with it. But at the time, every time something that would happen as such, I would get really upset or emotional. And I think it's something that I've learned a lot from in the beginning. I would get so overwhelmed with some of the the issues that would come up or the drama that would come up. And and I would take it personal. And now I've just learned that you just can't, you know, you have to be the boss and you have to just move forward. And so at this point now, I'm busy enough that I almost have too much staff um, I, because I always have to factor in that one day that somebody's not going to show up and it throws everything off. And so I've just learned I've gotten to the point now where I probably have one extra person every day more than I need to. But then it really helps on those days that we're busy and it definitely covers us for days when people are out. And so I think that. I've also learned over time what type of staff works well for my clinic, and that's not the same for everybody. But for me, I really enjoy mentoring and having younger staff who maybe graduated from college and who are thinking about going to med school but might have one or two gap years. That's worked really well for me because I think they show up, they come to work, 
they're motivated. They want that letter of recommendation. They want to do research and they want to, um, you know, have a good ability to get into medical school. And so for me at the moment, at least that tends to be the type of people that I hire, even though with the understanding that there is turnover. And so every time that happens, you got to have people there to help train and I have to take the time to train. But for the day to day, that's that's been working well for me. Also, with my background in academics, I really enjoy teaching and I really enjoy having some clinical research. So I do have some of those things going on, too. At the same time, I have a research project going on and I have um, academic faculty position at Tulane. So I have med students come in and rotate and things like that. So I found ways to kind of carve my practice into what I want and having the staff that I want. But it took a long time to figure out what that was. In terms of hiring staff, because I've tried to use recruiting companies and things like that, and for me, it just hasn't worked well. So I use ZipRecruiter or Indeed, and I just know that when it's time to hire someone, I have to dedicate the time to to finding the right person. It's gotten easier over time. I de- I've definitely noticed that, too, that the, the best people tend to go on, you know, you, you lose them to something else, whether it be like they get promoted or they they're going to go back to school. Like I've, that's happened to a few a few people in kind of my orbit lately. And I'm just like, oh, I'm so sad to lose you, but I'm, I'm so happy for you. Like you deserve it. Like, that's great. I'm glad you're you know onwards and upwards for you. But it's it, it's that's such a accurate observation is that some of the best people will kind of move on. And I used to feel kind of sad, like what you mentioned, because it's like, oh, okay, they're leaving. But now it's like I sort of try to understand when I hire them what their timeline is. Okay, so you're here for one year. What can we do during that one year to get to accomplish your needs as well as mine? And they love that. They're like, okay, I need to get into med school. I need a letter of recommendation. Do you have any connections? I'm like, yes, yes, and yes. I will do everything I can to support you. You show up and you do a good job here. So even though they may only be there for a year or two, you're getting like 150%. And so for me, that's worked really well, at least at this time, maybe when I get an office manager and I have somebody who can dedicate more time to helping me hire long-term people, that will happen with time. And I would love that. I just haven't figured that piece out yet. Yeah. Well, and maybe maybe in another five to 10 years, they'll start coming back. They'll be your you know partners you can hire in the future. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I love the uh, how to be a boss. I mean, that's an entire podcast in itself because, yes, on one level, it's organizing and managing people, perhaps even yourself. And on on the other, there's so many other levels of coaching, mentoring, and sort of playing that overall role in your practice. So I think maybe that'll be the next podcast, Rena. And hopefully if we do this again in the future, I'll have better tips on how to be your own boss. I'm still trying to figure it out every day. (laughs) There's always new things that come up. I mean... Literally every week, there's a new situation um, with patients, with staff that I'm like, okay, I guess we're going to figure this out. And okay, I guess we're going to figure this out. And we do, and everything works out. But I used to get very stressed out about those little things of this patient got upset about this bill or this patient refused to wear a mask and now is like saying bad things about me on Facebook or, you know, all of those. I mean, everything you can imagine I've encountered at this point, I feel, and I'm sure there's so many things I haven't encountered that will come. And I used to get very upset and worked up. And now it's like, I just don't have time for it. I just need to just move forward. And if somebody says something bad about me or doesn't like one of my policies in the office, you know what? Too bad. Like, I just got to move on. But I didn't. I was not like that in the beginning. The beginning, I felt like I had to make everybody happy and I had to do everything for everyone and spend four hours with one patient. And, you know, and I was doing a lot of that at the in the beginning just to build my name in, in the community. And I just 
as and I still spend a lot of time with patients. I think a lot of patients will still say that, but the time is running out. It's only me and I'm busy. So now I'm at the point of trying to figure out how to secure myself and try to figure out ways to make my time worth the effort and the money. Do you, do you think that you will, in your expansion, have you thought about, you know, the kind of pros and cons of adding another, you know, physician versus adding an advanced practice provider like a nurse practitioner or a PA? That's a great question. To answer your question, honestly, no. I know I need help. <laughs> I, that much I know. And I know I need space because I'm still in the situation of the two to three exam rooms. So I'm, I can't bring somebody else on until I have more exam rooms to put people. But I've interviewed a little bit like NPs. Um, there's been some fellows who have reached out to me that might be looking for jobs. And I certainly have thought about the different options, but I haven't made a decision on what that would look like because I don't think I can bring somebody else on until I have the space. So I'm, now I'm at the point where I'm looking to buy a building. Um, I put a lot of money into rent and it's been, you know, great for me as a starting point. But now if I'm thinking about next steps, it would be great to have an investment on top of, you know, having the space. So real estate here, especially during COVID times, has been hard. I haven't found the space. And again, remember, I'm limited to uptown, so <laughs> which I'm happy about. And the space will come, I'm sure, with time. But I, I feel very strongly that I want to be in this location. And so I'm being picky and choosy. The other thing, at least for me, and I don't know if it's the same with ENT, but it's really important for me to be close to a hospital because things happen. And so I have had patients who have anaphylaxis. And, you know, as much as you can try to do in the office setting, sometimes you need that ER visit. Or if I get a consult in the middle of the day from the hospital, it's really nice to be right here so I can run over and do it and come right back. If I was 20 minutes away, I would have to find time either before or after work to do those things. And that's hard. So. I will say I, I'm also limited in my location because I really want to be next to one of the hospitals where I put privileges at. So just thinking about that, if you're thinking about starting your own practice, location, location, location is the most important part. Where you see yourself long term, where you, you know, whether that's commuting or not commuting. For me, I did not want to commute. Whether you see yourself needing to be near a hospital or if you're doing surgeries to be near a surgical um, center. So just keeping those things in mind, because once you get established, it's hard to relocate. And as far as, you know, being your own boss and managing yourself and your time, how do you decide, you know, how much time you're going to take off, especially when you're booked out a couple of months and you've got all these patients that are needing to see you in your solo practice, but you, you know, you need a vacation too. Again, a great question. And this is something <laughs> that I still struggle with because anytime I do take off, I feel like when I come back, I have to pay for it a little bit. But I will say, I was adding up the weeks of vacation that I've taken off since the beginning of 2021. And y'all, it's like nine weeks. So <laughs> that's pretty good. I mean, that's I really have the good. ability to shut down. Like I will close my clinic when I have a wedding in the family or I want to go see my parents and they don't live locally. Or, you know, my dad got had a, a medical illness earlier this year and I just needed to dedicate time to that. So I did. And patients aren't happy, but I'm at the point now where I, I do. And this is a downfall where I hiring somebody else will hopefully fix this is when I'm out of town, I'm still available. So even when I go to visit my family, I'm doing televisits. I'm my staff is calling me. I'm answering questions. And so I haven't you're always on. So I haven't had a chance to break from that because I still really make myself available to my patients. So while I lose money that time, um, hopefully the practice doesn't feel it in the sense of continuity of care. 
In terms of my day-to-day life and managing time, that's hard because there's pressure where I feel like I need to be here. Okay, the hurricane hit, now I have to make up for that. And then Thanksgiving happened and Christmas. And while I take those days off, somewhere it's got to be made up because patients need to be seen. At this point now, I'm not necessarily worried about the the financial part of it because I know that that will come because I'm busy. It's more being available to my patients so that if if they have to wait two months to see me, they're going to go somewhere else. And so now it's trying to I do all sorts of crazy things where I overbook patients if they say it's an emergency or a doctor calls me and says, hey, can you get this person in this week? I do it and I make it happen, but I'm exhausted. And I feel I strongly about I don't I try not to work weekends. Um, and, I, you know, I try I have kids, so I try to be there for get done by five and be home for, for the things that I need to do. So I think what does suffer sometimes on my day to day is just being tired because I'm 100 miles per hour at work and then I've got to be available in the evening. So hopefully hiring somebody else will will fix some of those things. That's my goal. But I do take time off. If I know ahead of time, like my kids have a field trip, I will block that day. I'm going on a field trip on Friday. So if I have enough, you know, when I know my kids are are on vacation, I block that. I block the week off. How do you know when, um, and I don't know if practices do this as much now, I, I just don't know, but um, the options are, we said, include uh, hiring maybe an APP or another physician. Do you ever cover each other, like with another allergist in the community, have y'all ever thought about covering each other's phone calls or emergency patients? And how does that play a role in that sort of decision making in terms of your practice overall future and management? Or are you just so busy now that that's not enough? No, it is enough. I mean, I have done that with physicians. It's it's hard because they don't know my patients and not all allergists sees adults and kids. So sometimes it's, you know, if it's a pediatric question that comes up, that allergist may not be able to help. But what I have done is I hire fellows to, I pay them and I have them cover allergy shots. So one of the biggest things that can be challenging is if I'm not in the office for a week, none of those patients can get their shots. And that's hard because they commit to this treatment course where they're planning to come in weekly. And then if I'm not there, suddenly they get off schedule. And so if I know I'm going to be gone for a whole week, I have hired fellows to basically just come sit in my office and study and they get paid to be there for questions. And then if anybody has like an acute reaction, allergic reaction, they're they're there. So if I'm, if it's just like three days, I'll just close down and then be available the rest of the week and we'll squeeze in shots like that's what we did over Thanksgiving. But if I'm gone for a whole week, my best bet has been hiring fellows because they want the money. It's not they, they're they usually a second year fellow. So, I mean, they're about to graduate and they know how to handle anaphylaxis at that point And, you know, the basic questions or at least they're here in case something happens. And if they have questions, they can call me. So that's what I've, I've done. Rather than hiring other allergists, um, I found that fellows are, you know, they, they want to do it <laughs> and they want to get paid. Yeah. Well, it's a good experience for them to see how a a practice runs that's outside of what maybe they've seen at their institution as well. Yes. And if they're good, then hopefully when I have the space, I can hire them. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So as we start to wrap up, Rena, any final thoughts, pearls or advice for trainees or people just that are in there first, whether it's five years, 10 years out of practice that have kind of always thought about this or maybe haven't? Any final thoughts or advice? I think that if you're thinking about it, do it. I can't stress enough that, yes, it's it's overwhelming, it's daunting, it's hard, but you have done harder things in your life. And to be your own boss, there's nothing like it. I have physicians come up to me all the time and they're like, there's no way I would do that. You're crazy. That's That's impossible. But it's really not. You can figure it out. And if you have the cushion to be able to do it, I really think that if you do a good job, you're yourself, 
you practice good medicine, the patients will come. And so I, I think that it's really something that I wish more people did because I think that the benefits of it are so much more. I am so much happier. And I just feel like if you're thinking about doing it, please take it to the next step and really try because I think you'll be happier. And I'm available if anybody is thinking about starting their own practice and they don't know where to start. I understand that there's different fields of medicine, but the common theme is we all have the same things that we need. And so feel free to reach out to me anytime. My email address is Dr. Meta, D-R-M-E-H-T-A at uptownallergyandasthma.com. I would be happy to talk to you. I would be happy to share my notes with you in any sort of graphs, timelines, Excel sheets. Um, let me know. I'd be happy to help. Well, I think this could probably go on for another hour, um, but this might be a good place to um, to put a pin in it. I, I'm so excited for you um, with, you know, your expansion coming up and it sounds like you've done so well already. Congratulations. I'm just going to throw it out there. I would love to work with an ENT. Like if I had another <laughs> ENT, because there's so much overlap and there's so many patients that we share back and forth, whether it's chronic sinusitis, whether it's allergy shots, whether it's immune workup for immunodeficiency, all of those things, that is the doctor that I refer to the most. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone is thinking about being in New Orleans and starting their own ENT practice, hit me up because I definitely think there's lots of room for collaboration. Dr. Mitchell, cover your ears, but Rena, I'll call you a little bit later. <laughs> I'll fly in. I don't know if Dr. Mitchell We've had that. this conversation. <laughs> I know. I've told you so many times. So I know. Me. I know. <laughs> and I love New Orleans uh, for our audience that don't know. So Rena's husband was in mine and Aaron's uh, med school class. And so we met Rena in our younger days and, and when we were residents. And so anyways, you know, I just, it, it is family in New Orleans for us. So, and I love, and, and I love that city. We, we, our kids are very close and, you know, it's, uh, we need to make a trip to visit you in Dallas. And you are, you are a Charles Better half. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there on the record. <laughs> we're all thankful. We're all so thankful when, uh, I can't wait for him to listen life. to this podcast. I know. I know. <laughs> all right. Well, for our <laughs> listeners that, um, have stopped by, thank you for joining us. And, and for anybody new, uh, hopefully you find this uh, helpful and, um, and fun. Um, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We'd love feedback for you to reach out, reach out to us uh, for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. Um, is there anything else that I'm missing, Ash? Subscribe, rate, and share. And that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs>